0: The following presentation was recorded at the buddhist society of victoria malvern east australia please visit our website at bsv.net.au okay so uh, let us come back to the uh, idea of right effort uh, on the buddhist path sama padana sama vayama which we are looking at uh, and uh, we had a look at the uh, idea of two powers. And because we are dealing with Samma Padana, Samma vayama right effort, it is the first of those two powers that we're really dealing with, the effort of reflection, how to think in the right way, so as to effect this right effort. And now we're going to look at how to do this in a bit more detail. This is one of those suttas that are kind of classical suttas on how to deal with the thinking mind. And uh, how to overcome any hindrances, etc., on the path. So a very useful sutta. It's called the uh, he'll call the removal of distracting thoughts, or it could just be called the removal of thoughts because all thoughts are distracting in this context. So removal of thoughts, I think, is a better translation. Vitakka santana. Vitakka is thought. Santana means calm. Yeah, the calming of thoughts. Um, found Majjhima Nikaya twin. And uh, there is also an interesting a parallel version in Chinese translation, and I will show you a, at least one interesting difference between the two as we come towards the very end of the sutta So uh, let's just get going in. Uh, thus have I heard. On one occasion, the blessed one was living at Savati in jeta's Grove, another Pindicus park. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus, Venerable Sir, they replied, and the Blessed One said this. Bhikkhus, when a bhikkhu is pursuing the higher mind from time to time, he should give attention to five nimittas, is the Pali word, signs There, Nimittas, what are the five? So, um, before we go on any further, uh, this is already a bit kind of uh, perplexing. Pursuing the high mind, what does that mean? High mind is the Adi Chitta. I did actually mention that this morning. And Adi is the equivalent to Samadhi and Jhanas and these kind of things. Uh, so, someone who is pursuing this, in other words, they're trying, yeah, just like I guess we are doing here, trying to. Uh, let go and allow things to be, and uh, achieving a state of samadhi. So this is uh, for anyone who's trying to achieve samadhi. So we are roughly right in saying that it's about right effort. Yeah, right effort, maybe right mindfulness as well uh, on the pathway to samadhi itself. And as you do this, you should give attention to five signs, nimittas, and here five signs means. It's kind of strange usage right here, but the idea is just basically five uh, um, sign in the suttas means almost like object, an object of meditation, that's often what it means. And so here what we're dealing with is what happens when you are focusing on a particular object, or subject, anapanasati, whatever it might be, and then the defilements that arise depending on that. uh, so five signs here actually seems to mean five methods in this particular case, it's a little bit strange. And then the word sign afterwards is used to mean the thing you focus on, so it's a bit kind of odd how it is used, used here. You find that in a number of suttas the word sign, nimitta, it is not, very often in Buddhism we talk about nimittas, uh, we talk about like a light in the mind, these kind of things. Uh, yeah. Or very sometimes in the Thailand and the Thai forest tradition, a nimitta means like uh, something you see in your meditation. Anything you see, like uh, some you know weird landscape, or some maybe you think it's something you think is your past life, and all of these things are also called nimittas. They are like creations of the mind, almost, uh, uh, including the samadhi. What is often called the samadhi uh, nimitta, nimitta is often often pronounced nimitta, but actually it's nimitta. Double T, I reckon, anyway, that's just <laughs> being pedantic here. So, uh, uh, nimitta is uh, this bright light that you see in your mind. Yeah? This is how it is often used in contemporary meditation language. But uh, in the suttas it doesn't mean that. In the suit, as it means like the object you are using. Yeah? So, for example, you find that the cemetery contemplations, they are the nimitta. Yeah? They are like the object or the subject of meditation. Interestingly, you find in the one of the sutras in the Majjhima it says that the four satipatthanas are the nimitta. Yeah, they are the nimitta that takes you to samadhi. Yeah? So they are the object of samadhi or the foundation of samadhi, maybe better. Yeah? So um, foundation or object or subject of meditation, all of these things are ballpark what this refers to. It's a bit of a word which is a bit sometimes a bit difficult to pin down really. We could both use the idea of sign, which is, um, I think sometimes they can use that as well, mean that as well, but uh, it is not perfect in this kind of connection, because this connection we are dealing with meditation practice. Uh, We are attending to something, usually a particular object uh, of meditation. So, um, anyway, so what are these five signs? Uh, And um, so let's... Uh, see what the Buddha has to say here, because uh, when a bhikkhu is giving attention to some sign uh, and owing to that sign, uh, there arises in him bad, unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with ill-will, and with uh, confusion. uh, Then he should give attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome. When he gives attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome or some other object or some other foundation of meditation, then any evil unwholesome thought or bad unwholesome thought connected with desire, ill will and confusion are abandoned in in him and subside. With the abandoning of them, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness and stilled. Just as a skilled carpenter or his apprentice might knock out, remove, and extract a coarse peg by means of a fine one, so too, when you follow this procedure, uh, give, you give attention to some other sign connected with his wholesome. His mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and stilled. So this method is sometimes called the method of substitution. Yeah, you take one thing and you just substitute something else and then bang, by that substitution, the unwholesome thought, or the unwholesomeness that arises, is dispelled. But um, I think that is a misleading way of talking about it, substitution. Because you can't just substitute things. If you just try to substitute without dealing with the underlying issue, then going to, it's going to be problematic. Yeah, so just putting one thing in there is a bit like using willpower. okay, I'm gonna to, just to kind of substitute one for another. Uh, it can be problematic. It depends a bit on the situation, but uh, sometimes you can do that, but uh, not always isn't isn't always possible uh, So one way that you can substitute, for example, is um, if you are if you are thinking of a person that gives rise to a negative, states in your mind, you get upset or whatever that person, you get a bit angry or whatever, then of course one way of substitution would then be to focus on another person, someone you kind of have a good relationship to. And you can then, by changing the object, thinking of something else, then the thing, the underlying issue is resolved in that way. So in that way substitution is possible. But ideally what you want to do is what we were talking about before. Ideally what we want to do is not even to change the object, have the same object of meditation, but look at that object in a different way. That is the ideal. Yeah, it's changing your attitude rather than changing the actual object. So there's both of these ways are acceptable: changing the object, but also changing your attitude to that object. So, and this is much more powerful because this is where we use wisdom. And when you use that wisdom, instead of just having another object and then still having that underlying ill-will towards the thing you looked at before, you're actually changing your entire outlook, uh, your entire mental state, uh, and you're seeing people in a new way. This is much more powerful. Uh, and then you don't, you know, it, never, it doesn't come back again at all, basically, the ill-will or whatever you had before. Uh. So, two ways, changing the object uh, or changing your attitude to the object. Uh, yeah, And uh, both of these are um, are acceptable, but I think changing your attitude is more more powerful. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the same thing with desire. Yeah, desire and ill will. Desire uh, uh, again. You just. Don't desire so much in the world of the five senses because you know there is no end in that world. You know that it just carries on. There's no satisfaction in that world. Satisfaction it fa- is found in, instead in the stillness and peace of the mind rather than in the desires of the world of the five senses. Again, so you think about that world in a new way and you turn your mind away. Yeah? With ill will, just been talking about that, you look at the person in a new way with compassion, with understanding. Okay, that's fine. Let go of that. Uh. And uh, thoughts connected with delusion. Well, these are usually thoughts like confusion or whatever. So you, uh, uh, I'm not sure. I guess maybe often there will be things like the other of the five hindrances. The three remaining of the five hindrances uh, might be things that are called delusion here. So a lot of that is overcome by looking at the first first two, rather than the actual thing itself. Uh. So this is what you do, yeah. And if you do it in the right way, yeah, then it is powerful. The thing just bang is gone; doesn't come back again. And because of that, it allows you then to achieve samadhi. And this is what the last part here is about. Yeah, you abandon them. The mind is steadied internally, yeah? quieted, uh, brought to singleness, and stilled. This is. Uh, a uh, ter- uh, phrase is used normally to me in the jhana states, uh, so deep samadhi here. Yeah. Yeah, but it's quite nice the um, the wordings here. steadied internally, yeah, yeah, it becomes steady. It first of all internally, it stays within, uh, doesn't go without, and that inner feeling is steady. Yeah. Uh, ajatang. Do you have your? your, your you have, oh, you, you do. Aha, okay, excellent. Uh, yeah. Ajatang Santittati, is that what it is? Can you? Maybe Ajatang Santittati. The last one is uh, uh, Samadahati or something? Singleness Ekodi Buddha or something? Majjhima 20. Yeah. Mm. We've got to have the real deal here. Go back to the source. So, uh, 20 is the last one of those 10. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go very to the end. Yeah. The I'll one. Stop thinking. Yes, the one. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Ha. Huh. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, so here we have the words. Yeah. Oop. Come back. There we are, okay. So we have the word Ajatang Chittang. Yeah, that's what I said. Santittati. Wow, my memory is better than I fear sometimes. I think it's kind of. I'm losing it, but okay, so it comes back. Ajatang Chittang Santittati. Ajatang internally, literally relating to oneself, that's what it means. It's Adi, Atta, Atta is self, yeah, Adi, so it's relating to oneself. Chittang Santittati. Tittati means to stand or remain. has uh, to means to remain, yeah? To stands, to, to be still, to be steadied. It doesn't move anymore, it remains where it is. So the mind remains. Gives you an idea of what samadhi is all about, right? When you hear the, these words. Uh, Sadnisidati. Nisidati means to sit down. Uh, this is kind of more of a metaphorical word for sitting. Uh, you are sitting, you are steadied, right? Uh, quieted is the is a translation here. Whereas uh, settled is uh, about Sujato's translation, which is nice, so it's settled. And then you have the word Ekodihoti, and Ekodihoti literally means become one. Yeah? And so he has unified here, whereas vikibodi um, has brought to singleness. Yeah, you can see the idea of unified inside. What does it mean to be unified? Well, what it means is that, first of all, it's a very simple perception. It's only a perception of one thing. Yeah, and that perception of one thing isn't changing. It's the same over time. It's unified both in space and in time, you could say. A single perception here and now, and then carrying on and on and on. It's unified. This is one of the standard words for samadhi in the sutta. It's ekodihoti. A, it's ekodibutta. is what you find for the second jhana, where samadhi reaches its kind of peak, in a sense. become one, singleness, Uh, there's no change, there's one thing going on, one brightness in the mind, one perception of bliss all the time. Uh, And uh, the last one is um, uh, Samadhyati. Samadhyati is uh, basically Samadhi, it becomes Samadhi, it becomes immersed in Samadhi, concentrated, becomes stilled, I would say, is the best one. So uh, this is what happens, you overcome that bad thought, and then uh, you still things uh, afterwards. And so this is kind of the standard way of uh, doing things, and you can see this, I haven't included the Veda Vitakka Sutta this time, the two kinds of thought which I often read out. But uh, it has the same. The process is the same. Yeah, it's a kind of a gradual movement, and you see this gradual movement quite beautifully in the simile that comes up next here. Yeah, the simile says that you use a skilled carpenter, so you have to be a skilled meditator, right? This is why you, you meditate quite a bit. You learn how to deal with the mind, or his apprentice. This is how the suttas always say that you are either the master or you're the apprentice. I guess the Buddha. Yeah, and then. Us maybe something like that. Uh, the Buddha is the master car- carpenter. Uh, we are trying to follow along. Uh, knock out, might knock out, remove, and ex- extract a coarse peg. The coarse peg is the bad thoughts by means of a refined peg or a fine peg. The fine peg is the good thoughts. It's still a peg. It's still not ideal. We want to get rid of all pegs eventually, and kind of uh, maybe I don't know, use putty or whatever to fill in that hole. I'm not sure what we want to do, but. Um, so you use a fine peg, which is the refined thoughts, and then you remove the peg altogether, which means then achieving samadhi. And this is exactly what you see throughout the suttas. You see this in the uh, Vitaka Sutta, the two kinds of thought, uh, where it talks about, first of all, you have the bad thoughts, and then you use wisdom power to overcome those bad thoughts. In that sutta, it is very obvious. Uh, the Buddha talks about I reflected like this. This is dangerous. Uh, this is painful for me. Painful for others. Uh, yeah? It uses reflection to overcome it. Uh. Overcome the bad thought, then you are thinking good thoughts, then you overcome the good thoughts, then you achieve samadhi. Yeah? Same kind of process. Uh. It's very important in Buddhism or in meditation that we do things in the right sequence. Uh. If you don't do things in the right sequence, you're not going to succeed. Uh. If you have bad thoughts and you try to go straight to peace you're going to fall asleep or you're going to suppress it or you're going to do something which isn't very wholesome or very useful you have to get the sequence right yeah very important and the Buddha says as much and another sutta which I very often read out is the Pangsudovaka sutta the earth washer earth remover sutta in the Gutra 3 is 100 or something 100, 100 where he says that you know you remove the had the defilements of the mind gradually the coarse ones the middling ones the refined ones uh, and then the really super duper refined ones uh, which are various you know things like um, thoughts about my country and my relations and my reputation that sort of thing in other words thoughts that have to do with your identity because your identity would block you from going very deep in meditation but you have to get the sequence right if you try to Remove the refined stuff first. If you try to go straight from having ill will or desire straight to becoming peaceful, it's not going to work. First overcome that. Make your mind peaceful. Have a feeling of goodness and kindness inside of you. Then you go to the meditation object. So know, try to know what you're doing. Yeah, be wise about yourself. Understand your own mind, how it works, the sequence of these things. And then you. this is how you then eventually have success in the meditation practice. So, um, that is how you uh, do that, and how you learn to shift your attention from one thing to another, and then you overcome the problem. And this is, of course, very much based on the idea that uh, the reason why we have unskillful thoughts, there is a reason for that. Yeah? And the Buddha talks about that reason in the suttas very obvious, very clearly. The reason why you have ill will is because you're seeing the negative in something. Yeah? You're seeing something which is unpleasant about another person. The pat- patiga, nimitta, patiga is a resistance. It's something in that person you are resisting, you don't like it. That, that's the word nimitta again. Yeah? It's the nimitta here means like the, you're seeing the resistance object or the or the the aspect of of resistance in that object or something like that you're focusing on the negative in someone and if you try really hard you can find the negative in anyone right uh, so don't try that one because <laughs> that, that <laughs> leads leads the wrong way here yeah. but if you try equally hard you can see the good in anyone there's good things to be seen there yeah. and uh, that goodness that seeing the good or having compassion is ultimately the right way of seeing it that is more accurate than seeing the negative things uh. Why? Because everyone has sufferings, everyone is worthy of compassion. That's kind of what it comes back to. So compassion is always right. So you see the cause for the ill-will. Yeah, This is part of what. how you get out of it, how you learn to readjust. And then you uh, look at the person in a different way. You see the cause for the desire. Why, why do you have desire for something? Because you see the beauty in something. You think, wow, this is so nice. This person, so wonderful. This cake so good, this lunch, oh the lunch at the BSV, oh, the best lunch <laughs> we have whatever it is and then of course, you get attracted to these things so uh, yeah, anyway, so that's the first way, yeah, what if that doesn't work? What if this is actually, and remember one of the things I always point out about these suttas is that they are structured. There is a sequence to these things. There is a reason why this method comes first, and that is basically because it is the most powerful one. You have built up this feeling inside of, you understand the danger in the object, and because you have built up an alternative outlook, you you can shift your attention very quickly from one to the other. But if that doesn't work, then we have to move to the next one If, while he is giving attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome, there still arise in him bad unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with ill will and with confusion, then he should examine the danger in those thoughts. So now we come more directly to what I was saying before about seeing the danger. So the first one you have probably already contemplate the danger so much that you know it automatically. You don't have to contemplate, it, just you can move very quickly because you are, you're already so uh, familiar with that method. Uh. But here you're not quite so familiar, so you need to contemplate the danger a bit more. Uh. And this is exactly what happens in places like the Dveda-vitaka-sutta. These thoughts are unwholesome. Uh. They are reprehensible. Uh. They result in suffering uh. Yeah, so yeah. Adasudato has, they are unskillful, they are blameworthy, they result in suffer- suffering. Yeah. Um, when he examines the danger in those thoughts, then any bad unwholesome thought connected with desire, with ill will and with confusion are abandoned in him and subside. With the abandoning of them his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness and stilled. Yeah, so we have already, already talked a bit about this, seeing the danger in the thoughts, uh, that they are unwholesome. Uh, the Pali word uh, for unwholesome uh, here, unskillful, is. Um, uh, where are we? There. Oh, yeah, savad, uh, savadja. So vajja means that they are like yeah they are blameworthy or they have blame connected with them, and because they have blame connected with them, there will be a sense of uh, regret yeah if you indulge in these things too much. Uh, so for that reason, you uh, move away from that. It takes you away from all the good things in the world. Uh, unwholesome. It's unhealthy. It is bad for you basically. Yeah. Um, reprehensible. Here is. Uh, uh, actually, akusala, okay, that was a reprehensible, akusala is unwholesome, right, uh, okay. Yeah, so you just uh, understand that all of these things, they lead you in the wrong direction. Ultimately, it leads to suffering long time in the future, takes you away from the Buddhist path, uh, and it is really problematic in all conceivable ways, really. Yeah. So then, as you do that, uh, then again, your mind becomes still because you abandon those bad thoughts, uh, And then there's this beautiful simile which uh, comes here. Just as a young man or a woman, youthful, fond of adornments, uh, would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted uh, if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around his or her neck. So too, uh, when you see these unwholesome thoughts, you get rid of them just like you get rid of a carcass of a dead dog hanging around your neck. So too when a bhikkhu examines the danger in those thoughts uh, his mind becomes steadied internally quieted brought to singleness and stilled a Very powerful simile here uh, and uh, it's almost uh, it just shows you how Wrong. We are about our thoughts very often. Uh, yeah? You get angry and sometimes we indulge in that anger because we think that it is right to be angry. It is worthwhile. We feel good about being angry sometimes because we feel in this situation, anger is required. Yeah, This time, okay, usually not, but this time certainly is required. Uh, and it actually feels good. Uh, we enjoy the anger to some extent. If we didn't enjoy it, we would never get angry. We get something out of that. Uh, and uh, to be able to overcome that sense of it gives you a sense of power. Yeah? So it feeds the ego a little bit. You feel energ- energized and empowered when you get angry sometimes, uh, um, and it feels right. Yeah, you're going to sort out the world, and you're going to kind of make put things right again. So there is a sense of uh, something. The ego is satisfied to some extent uh, when there is anger, and it also can feel good as well in a certain way. So for that reason we have to be careful. Sometimes we talk as if it's obvious that anger is unpleasant, but actually it is not always that obvious. Sometimes it is actually feels pleasant. So it shows you how deluded we are. Yeah? Something that should be regarded as the carcass of a do- dead dog hanging around your neck. How would you feel about having a dead dog hanging around your neck? Not very happy, yeah? You'd say, please please take it off, you know, most, ven- most venerable sir, I don't want this dead dog around my neck, Can we- do you mind if we remove it? Can we please have this dead dog removed? Okay then, we'll remove it. Off it goes. So that's what we're doing now, we're removing the dead dogs, this is what this suit is about, the removal of dead dogs sutta. So, <laughs> this is what this is about. So, but this shows you, it is something that is really bad, yeah, like a dead, imagine a dead dog, I guess it depends on how, how dead it is, if it is only just dead, it's not so bad, but if it's been dead for a while, then it's, it gets really disgusting. So, um, this is how, how we should ideally look upon these things, they are really terrible, and you can imagine, you will just reject it straight away, if that is the thing, you would get rid of that dead carcass pretty much immediately, in the same way. That's how we should actually deal with these unskillful thoughts. That is how bad they are. So we are very deluded. We don't see this at all, really. We see it partially, at best. But seeing it fully, you almost have to be the Buddha to see that. And that is angry thoughts. Well, with angry thoughts, at least it is reasonable. Not that hard, yeah. We can do it at least reasonably well. But with thoughts of desire, what's wrong with Enjoying thoughts of desire. Yeah, the beautiful things in the world. Everyone likes the beautiful things in the world. Uh, beautiful sunshine outside. Uh, you know, having some nice food and nice relationships and all of these kind of things. But nothing is surely wrong with that. Uh, except, of course, that it blocks you from the path. Uh, it tires you out. Uh, it leads you in the wrong direction. Uh, yeah, this is why it is unwholesome. Uh, it stops you from achieving the higher things. Uh, so we try to avoid this, uh, avoid these things. Uh, and um, when it comes to overcoming thoughts of desire i should uh, it's important to understand what this actually means uh, because sometimes people become too kind of uh, um, idealistic about what that means i think if i have a thought about food it's bad or whatever when i go for lunch or don't look too much at the food because desire might arise Uh, that's the that's the wrong way of thinking about it. it's okay to have a bit of desire when you Go to have lunch yeah, because it's natural you might be a bit hungry that food is there and yes a bit of desire arise that's not really the issue and the reason it's not an issue is because once you had your fill and you're happy you don't think about food afterwards yeah it's like me in the monastery often i just have one meal a day sometimes we have, often we have breakfast as well it varies a little bit but I never think about food in the afternoon. Yeah, I don't think about food in the evening. That is where the problem arises. If you think about these things at the wrong time, when you're not supposed to think about it, so even though food is very important for people and it matters a lot to eat nicely, after a while you don't. You don't. As long as you don't carry on reflecting on these things and and needing this even when you are not really hungry, that is. Then there's, there's no problem. That is what you want to overcome. Yeah. This this is kind of the issues here. So don't uh, become like uh, you know, someone who just really hates the whole sensual realm because you end up hating yourself as well if you do that uh, because it's just too much. Uh, yeah. And of course, a very important part of this, the real issue with these things, is usually comes more in the realm of. Sexuality, because that is really the one big defilement that tends to overwhelm the mind completely. Other defilements in that realm are much, much weaker. This is the big one. And if you can overcome that one, that is really the, the hardest one. To be able to do that, you have just to be less interested in relationships. You have to see the downside of all of these things in the world, uh, to see that it ends up in a bad place. Uh, It doesn't really solve any issues, it gets you more attached, it blocks you from achieving samadhi, blocks the path to Nibbana, all of these things. And as the more you see that, the more you see that this is just a craving which drives you on blindly in the world, from one relationship to to another, uh, often without any uh, any real kind of idea, even who you're getting into relationships with. I saw a video on YouTube a while ago, it was really interesting and the video was why you always get into a relationship with the wrong person. That was the video. Why you always choose the wrong person. And the reason is because you don't know who to choose. We're not very wise when it comes to choosing people, we're kind of blind. We're following some deep kind of habit inside. And what it said is that you tend to choose things, that kind of how it depends on how you grew up. Yeah, So if you have a certain mother and father in growing up, you tend to choose someone who's a bit, maybe a bit similar to your mother or your dad or something like that, because they treated you in a certain way and that's your habit, you want to be treated in the same way. We are really bad at choosing partners in life. And this is a, a, a reflection that I did sometimes, I saw I looked at, first of all, I looked at my mother and father, and I thought, do I want to be exactly like my mother and father? They're good people. They are, you know. There's nothing really seriously wrong with them. They never even got divorced. They stayed together their whole life, and they have lot many good things to say about them. But would I want to be exactly like them? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. I mean, a the, the, the thing is, in that relationship, I sort of, oh, no, please, don't, don't really want to go there. And then I looked at my my sister, and my sister was is a very kind of she's dead dead now, but she was a kind of person who was for lots of energy, always doing things, kind of super active. Make me feel like a, a sloth compared to her, like a, she, And 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 she, but her choice of boyfriend was just ah, oh. like <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I mean. And, and then she, occasionally she would find a really good boyfriend as someone I could relate to, someone who was kind of decent and nice and kind and had some good qualities. I thought, yeah, okay, now you've got yourself a good boyfriend. And then she rejects him, yeah. <laughs> and then she finds some kind of maniac later on. Some kind of <laughs> And then I would, I would ask her, well, why did you reject this one? And you go onto that one. And she would tell me, oh, I just didn't know what I was doing. That's what she would <laughs> tell me afterwards. I had no idea. I just didn't know what was happening. And I thought, yes, right, exactly. That's kind of how things are. And then I saw my, my brother. And he has been married now for, I don't know how long. How long has he been married? Probably 20 years or whatever. And you, you met my brother, if anyone's yeah. Yeah, and he's this really, really nice, really, really nice young guy, and everyone is kind of person everyone likes it because he's very kind of friendly and kind and all these kind of things. And then I, he gets together with this girl, and I think I would never choose a girl like that. What, what on earth is he doing? And then I realize that my family members, I'm probably a bit like them. Yeah, because that's why somehow you are in the same family, probably a bit of the same genetic make up same kind of psychology whatever, I would probably make exactly the same kind of mistake. I think I'm conceited enough to think that I wouldn't make that mistake. But that's just conceit, right? That's just stupidity on my part, and I realize that. And I am horrified at the idea of kind of ending up in those kind of relationships. This is how I think, no, relationships, okay. <laughs> this is one of the ways that I use to to do that. And uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that, though. We don't really know what we're doing here. And we are kind of blind very often. Uh. And uh, so this is how you reduce that appeal, a little bit of... Uh, Sexuality and these kind of things, yeah, because uh, there is a big, big downside there. And because this is a very big defilement, it is especially in monastic life, it is very important to be able to overcome this. But in lay life too, yeah, especially if you live a simple lay life, you live by yourself or whatever, and even if you have a husband or wife or partner, you don't really want to go anything beyond that, you want to keep things simple then it can be very useful to see the limits of these things and, and be clear about it, uh, especially in meditation, of course. Uh, so you give up all of that. Uh, and um, you try to see that because it is uh, something that blocks true happiness. Uh, then get rid of that carcass of that snake or that dog. What is worse, the carcass of a snake or the carcass of a dog? Uh, I think the carcass of a dog is worse. if you, so yeah. snake. Snake is worse for you. Okay, I think dog is worse. Human being might be the worst of all. Yeah, well, <laughs> oh, really disgusting. A dead human being—it's cheapest. So, anyway, <laughs> um. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm uh, maybe going a bit too far. So <clears throat> <we laughs> get back to the real, the real dumb way. So let's. So we try this. Understand the downside of these things. Uh, and as you do that, uh, your mind moves. Hopefully, moves away from these things. But you can see how this takes work. Yeah, it is not easy. I mean, the dhamma is very demanding of us. Uh. It is something that you need to reflect on. Uh. And uh, you know, this one great way of doing this is to come on retreats every now and again to be reminded. Uh, because sometimes it's hard to reflect on these things in quite the same way when you are by yourself. So this is one way of doing this, but to be, be reminded. Uh, and this is one of the reasons I don't mind doing these things every year, because I know everyone needs to be reminded, myself included. Yeah, so I, I, I take this as a great opportunity as well. So it's, it's good. Huh? So let's, if that doesn't work, then we have the third way. If while he is examining the danger in those thoughts, uh, this still arise in him, or in that person, bad, unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with ill will and with confusion, then he should try to forget those thoughts and not give attention to them. Yeah, forget here, let's see what the uh, Oh how does this start start get this started? Yeah. Just Okay, press the button, okay. I yeah. oh, have to enter the codes here. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Mm. So, we, yeah, so he has here ignore and forget about them, is what he has, and the Pali words here are, are ten. Asatti, Amanasikaro. Okay, so, yeah, so, asati means to kind of not having mindfulness of them, that's ignoring them. manasikara means not paying attention to them. So both of those are kind of similar thing, yeah? You, you, you turn your mindfulness away, you turn your attention away from those thoughts. So, so um, what this means, for example, would mean like in meditation, you have you get some disturbing thought coming up, you put your mind gently back on the breath. Yeah, That's what that would mean in that case. You don't pay attention to that thought and you kind of leave it on the breath. And then what happens is that, that thought might kind of ruminate in the background a little bit and then eventually it dies down because you are focusing on the breath. Uh, pay no attention to it. Uh, yeah, It's just uh, uh, there, sitting kind of in the back. and You just keep on going with the breath. Uh, when you try to forget those thoughts, uh, or not being mindful of them, not having paying attention to them, uh, then those thoughts uh, are abandoned, uh, yeah, ideally. Uh, and when they are abandoned, again, your mind is steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and stilled. Just as a man with good eyes, uh, who did not want to see forms uh, that had come within range of sight, uh, would either shut his eyes or look away. Uh, so too, when a bhikkhu tries to forget those thoughts, he does not give attention to them. His mind becomes steadied eternally, quieted, brought to singleness, and stilled. So, um, yeah. So you close your eyes. You look in a different direction. You don't focus on the uh, on those things, and then they disappear. When you see that. Someone you don't like, you look in a different direction, or you see them in a different way. Or you can see here you're going from the more powerful ways to more refined, more less powerful ways uh, through the sequence. So if the previous one doesn't work, then you try the next one. Uh, so here you just look away essentially. Yeah. The um, I think the translation here are not, to my mind, kind of a bit. You know, just as a man with good eyes who did not want to see forms that had come within range of sight, uh, it sounds. It doesn't sound kind of like something anyone would say. It sounds very formal. And uh, so, uh, just as a man with good eyes who did not want to see forms uh, would uh, see would see forms, that's good enough. You don't have to say come within range. He would shut his eyes and look away. Sometimes the translations need to be, in my opinion, deformalized and made simple, so that it's as if we are talking a normal language. Uh, that is one of the things that I have always liked in my when I do translations. Uh, yeah, this, this is a little bit similar, but uh, yeah. So anyway, you get the idea what it is about. Uh, But I have always had this idea that when you hear a sutta, it should get the feeling as if the Buddha is talking to you. That is really ideal. So you get the feeling that you are in the presence of this spiritual genius. That's when it really becomes strong and powerful. So you look away, you shut your eyes. And of course, sometimes this can work, but it's not a very powerful technique. If you have a very strong defilement arising within you, then looking aside, it's kind of tends to come back again, yeah? the idea tends to come back. Yeah? Sometimes in meditation, uh, uh, if you put your attention back on the breath or the meta object or whatever it is, uh, you, actually the thought will disappear, but often it does not. It can, once it is established, it comes back again. Huh? So it is not a very strong method, uh, and, uh, but uh, yeah. So if that doesn't work, let's move on to the next one. Uh. If while he is trying to forget those thoughts uh, and does not give attention to them, uh, there still arise in him bad, unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with ill will, and with delusion, uh, then he should give attention uh, to the stilling of the thought formation of those thoughts. uh. So, um, what does this mean? (laughs) No one knows what that means, uh, but I will... Tell you what I think it means. Um, so we have the, uh, the Pali here. Uh, vitaka Sankara Santana. So it means the santana means to calm, yeah. Santana to kind of calm things down. Sankara, what is that? That's the will. Yeah, it is the volition inside. And vitaka is the thought. So it's the thought the calming of the will to think. That's quite literally what it means, yeah. And that is much more meaningful than the idea of thought formation, which, to most people, means nothing or even less than nothing. This makes you confused sometimes. So, so um, you're calming the thought, the will to think, yeah. So how do how how is that calming of the will to think? How does that work, yeah? So. That's what we have. First of all, when he gives attention to that calming of the will to think, then any bad unwholesome thoughts, connected with desire, with ill will and confusion, are abandoned in them and subside. With the abandoning of them, his mind becomes steadily, internally, quieted, brought to singleness and stilled. Just as a person walking fast might consider, hmm, why am I walking fast? What if I walk slowly? Or he would walk slowly, then he might consider, why am I walking slowly? What if I stand? Or he would stand, he might think, oh, why am I standing? What if I sit? And if you sit, he might consider, mm, why am I sitting? Perhaps I should lie down. i <laughs> not sure what kind of person this is, maybe a lazy person or something, I'm not sure. <laughs> and he, <laughs> he would lie down. And uh, by doing so, he would substitute for each grosser posture, one that was more subtle. So the idea here, and uh, what I think is going on, is stilling of the will. Well, what does it mean to still the will? And the stilling of the will is really just the ability to observe without being involved. Uh, If you're able to observe something without being involved in that thing, uh, it's the involvement, that's what the will comes from. uh. But just observing, just being aware, and as you are aware the, uh, and don't get involved, the will gradually calms down. Yeah, This is what we see in meditation practice. This is why when you are aware of the breath, things calm down, they become more peaceful. Because the awareness, just staying with things, allows the will to die down in the background. You're no longer feeding the will. Feeding the will comes from um, getting involved with things, yeah, it comes from the interest in the object. But by not taking the object, by just being aware of what is going on, just watching it, you're no longer feeding that activity in the mind. This is kind of one of those interesting things, is that people often ask, well, all these thoughts, they just come into my mind. Why am I thinking these thoughts? I don't want to think these thoughts. Well, actually, you do want to think these thoughts. <laughs> Well, this is the problem. And this, sometimes it, it's kind of almost embarrassing. Do I really want to think this rubbish? And the answer is yes, <laughs> and because sometimes that rubbish is better than not thinking at all. Because thinking nothing at all is just really boring, and nothing is going on. And then there's all this rubbish is there instead. And you don't have to worry too much. Everyone thinks r- lots of rubbish, so you're just you're in very good company. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that's just the nature of the mind. It throws up all kinds of things. So. Okay. Uh, so yeah. So there's, there's all these things going on, and we actually want to think those things. And because we want to do it, it means that we are applying the will to think these things. We are actually intending it. So by just being still, by being aware, by being present, uh, we stop the feeding mechanism of those things. Uh, we're no longer interested in them, we just stay with the breath. Uh, and uh, to be able to do that, you then have to see the beauty in the breath and all of these kinds of things uh, to make the breath interesting. Yeah. You allow the will to calm down, this is a very important part of the meditation practice. I just mentioned you the other day the, you know how when you look at the anapanasati sutta, it talks about each stage, you calm it down, yeah you calm down the experience, you calm the breath, then you calm the bliss, and eventually you calm the mind and you reach the full stillness all the way through it is calming down. What is that calming down? It is not something you do by an act of will. It is something you do by withdrawing the will or by allowing the will to die down, as you're doing here. So you just stay with the object. You stay with what you're doing, and you don't take any interest in it, and you allow the whole thing to calm down. The thought formation or the will is kind of taken out in this way here. All right. So, um, what if that doesn't work? Yeah, it, not, these things are not always easy to do, you can imagine, but uh, they may work, especially they may work if the thought is not very strong, very overwhelming, then these things might actually work. But uh, the last one, if while he's giving attention to the stilling of the will uh, behind the thoughts, There still arise in him bad, unwholesome thoughts, connected with desire, with ill-will, and with confusion. Then with his teeth clenched, and the tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth, he should beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. Hmm. (laughs) When... With his teeth clenched and his tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth, he beats down, constrains, and crushes mind with mind. Then any bad, unwholesome thoughts, connected with desire, with ill will, and with delusion or confusion, are abandoned in him and subside. With the abandoning of them, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and stilled. So this... This I think this can safely be called willpower. Huh? <laughs> so, but um, now the interesting thing about this, as uh, someone pointed out the other day, is that um, um, this particular method is also talked about elsewhere. Huh? It is talked about in the, this in the. Um, Maha Sutta, Majimanika 36, the greater discourse to Satchaka. Satchaka was one of these debaters who debated with the Buddha. And in the Sutta, the Buddha talks about his life story, what he did to achieve awakening. And he talks about the time when he did the Atta Kilamatanu Yoga, the tormenting of the body. And one of the practices he did was this one. And he says there, it doesn't work. It doesn't bring you to enlightenment. And here it says you, you you overcome the bad thoughts and you become stilled and it takes you to enlightenment. So what's going on? And these are kind of in, little interesting things yeah. because this, uh, when you think about these apparent contradictions in the suttas, uh, then you have to come to some kind of resolution. What is going on here? Is the sutta, has it been corrupted? Is it wrong in one place and not in the other one? Is there a... Uh, uh, Could it be that, uh, or or is there some way to reconcile this, that actually it is reconcilable, it just seems on the surface to be non-reconcilable? And I don't think that there is any evidence that either of those suttas are corrupted. I I think that they both probably are are okay the way they are. I don't think there has been any flaws in those suttas. So how do we reconcile this? And remember, there is a very different, important distinction between these two cases. The case in the area, in the sorry, in the uh, Sutta, is a method that the Buddha uses as a single method to achieve awakening. Here, yeah, just crushing mind with mind. Uh, that is his whole path to awakening. Yeah, it is not even one factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's like zero point one factor because it's only a small part of right effort. Yeah, this if this is the fifth method of how to kind of control the mind, uh, and that is only one small part within the right effort. So this may Five percent of right effort, uh, and right effort is is one eighth of the path. So five percent of one eighth. Uh, what are we getting down to? Uh, okay, it's, it's not much. It's a very small, very small amount. Yeah. So we're talking about um, what are we talking about? Yeah, very little amount. Anyway. So. Um, so this is the difference. There, it is the whole path, and that's why it doesn't work. Here, it is something that you use in a very specific circumstance when all the other factors don't work. You've tried to use your wisdom. You tried to just stand back and watch it calm down. Yeah, and still this thought of killing someone does obsesses your mind, and you don't want to kill anyone. Yeah, okay, okay. In this case, I better crush mind with mind. Yeah, I'm gonna. Not kill that person, because I know it is a bad idea. Sometimes you have thoughts that are really just overwhelming, really negative and very persisting you don 't want to go there, and so you may blot it out a little bit but it 's in very special circumstances. The problem is that very often in life, this is often the first method we use yeah very often in life when you for example you are in a situation where you cannot really have a bad thought and you kind of banish the thought and you use willpower straight away to get rid of an unpleasant thought which uh, is not appropriate in the situation. Uh, yeah, maybe a thought of ill will or something you are, but it's not, it's impossible to express it. So you just banish it by an act of will. Uh, so very often we get it wrong. We take the method which comes last. We use it first uh, because it is the only method we know. Yeah, it's using willpower. Uh. Very often that's the only way we know how to deal with these things. And because of that, we then end up messing things up. And when you use too much willpower in this way, what happens is that you know, sometimes you have, it has very bad psychological consequences for you. Suppress, suppression of things can end up in a very bad way. So remember the sequence here. Yeah. And the sequence in the sutta is that you start out with using wisdom power. First of all, try to understand what is going on. Turn your mind in a different direction because you know that this is bad. These two first two methods are all about wisdom power. They are by far the two most, most important ones. Then comes the idea of turning away or just allowing, allowing things to be without feeding it. Yeah? Things need to be fed, to be sustained. If you don't feed it, if you just watch that thought, it will eventually die down. So that's the second thing, not paying attention and not feeding the thought. And then if you are desperate at the very end, you can't get rid of this thought, and it's a really bad thought, only then should you use willpower to overcome that particular thought. So there's a kind of a clear series of steps here, and this is why I think this may be part of the sutta. It is part of a larger perspective of how to deal with the mind, and only then does it really make sense. It is not a path in its own right. And uh, so, yeah, just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him and crush him, so they're definitely using willpower here. So the same way, with your teeth clenched and the tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth, the bhikkhu beats down, constrains and crushes one mind state with another. Mind with mind. I think here it is better to translate it as mind state, because it's a particular state in the mind that is the problem. So you use your mind's power to overcome one particular state. Chitta is the Pali word. I believe, um, yeah. So yeah. So chitta is the Pali word. So you, you, you. Uh, that's often means mind state or mind quality rather than mind in general. And then uh, you become stilled internally. It says here, but it's uh, maybe. But I think it's quite difficult if you use so much willpower. Anyway, we've come to the very last part of the Sutta. Because when a bhikkhu is giving attention to some object, some meditation thing, some quality of that meditation object, owing to that object, there arises in him bad, unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with ill will, and with confusion. Then he gives attention to some other object or some other quality of that object connected with what is wholesome. Then any such unwholesome Thoughts are abandoned in him and subside. And with the abandoning of them, his mind becomes stepped internally, quieted, brought to singleness and still. When he examines the danger in those thoughts, when he tries to forget those thoughts and does not pay attention to them, when he gives attention to the stilling of the will behind those thoughts, in other words, you just look at that thought and you don't really feed it anymore. You're just aware of what is going on uh, when, with his teeth clenched and his tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth, uh, he beats down, constrains, and crushes one mind-state with the mind, then uh, any such bad, unwholesome thoughts are abandoned in him, uh, and his mind becomes stepped internally, quieted, brought to singleness and stilled. Uh. This bhikkhu is called the master of the courses of thought— uh, he will think whatever thought he wishes to think and will not think any thought that he does not wish to think. So that is the idea here, to be able to have some a sense of being in charge of your own mind. Yeah, This is kind of the idea here. And of course the thing that really makes you in charge of your mind is is the mindfulness, sati. Satya is called the Adipataya, but it means like lordship. It uh, has lordship over Dhammas, over phenomena, because when you have good mindfulness, you can see things coming and you can take charge of your mind. It's one of the powers of mindfulness, that you feel in control of yourself. You can lead your mind in the right way, you can take action at the right time, all of these things. Samadhi is the same. Stillness of the mind also gives you that sense of being in charge of yourself. So the more developed your mind is, the more ability you have to do precisely this, be in charge of what you're doing. So building up mindfulness, building up samadhi is a very important part of this. So a person who is able to think exactly what they want is someone who is very advanced on the path. In the meantime, we try our very best to achieve that. Then you have this very second last line which I have kind of made f- a bit faint which says that he has severed the cr- craving, flung off the fetters with the complete penetration of conceit. He has made an end of suffering here. Uh, but that line is not found in the Chinese version so I have uh, and it doesn't really fit with the overall suit uh, because it's not really it's really about knowing how to deal with your mind. So I think that may have been added later on as a kind of Completion, so to speak, which is quite common in the suttas. This is what the Blessed One said, the bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So, there you are, how to deal, how to calm down thoughts. And uh, this sutta kind of sets it out in outline what, it we ha- what we have to do. It doesn't talk very much about the specifics, about what exactly we have to do to think about how to use our mind. But it gives an outline of what we have to do. Use wisdom, then turn your attention away, and finally use willpower. And the next sutta we're going to have a look at actually looks in much more detail how to do that. And this is one of the suttas I teach on every single retreat I ever do. So I get to hear this sutta, I get to hear it about six or seven times a year at least, yeah, (laughs) because you teach all these retreats all over the place. But it is really worthwhile to contemplate. So we'll come back to that tomorrow. In the meantime, please keep on enjoying yourself, and we'll see you back again at 6.30 this evening here. Thank you, Ajahnar